Katie, all news is biased one way or another. Sometimes it's unconscious, simply human nature. And sometimes it's conscious, like when I try to systematically purge the internet of all content pertaining to your big, dumb, anti-Semitic dog, Moose. The outcome is the same. Bias in the news impacts how we see the world. Add in online filter bubbles and the situation gets even worse. Ground News, the world's first news comparison platform, has taken a different approach to improving the broken media ecosystem. Ground News gives you the ability to compare how sources with different biases are covering a story, so you can easily see if it's being spun to fit a political narrative. Their app also alerts you to any news blind spots that you might have, stories that were only covered by one side of the political spectrum. As a listener of Blocked and Reported, you're likely hoping to move beyond regurgitated partisan hackery, such as claims that Moose is a good boy. Ground News enables you to do that for every story you read. It's a place for anyone who is tired of predictable mainstream narratives and interested in leaving their silos to see the fuller story. Learn more and try it for yourself by downloading the free Ground News app or try it on the web at check.ground.news blocked. Again, that's check.ground.news blocked. Moose sucks. <laughs> I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, how's it going? Not too bad. Jesse, you? Good. I, I, uh... I followed you on the old social media bit, and I noticed there is a new member or uh, members of the Herzog clan. Um, what are you referring to? The goats. Oh, you saw my tweet that said, we got goats. I see. Yes. Did you see the tweet underneath that tweet? No. What did that say? I'm going to go ahead and uh, send you a link here in our chat. All right. Just click that. Wait, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a level of... Um, this is a level of preparation I put in. <laughs> this is actually fucking ridiculous. I okay. I I looked glancingly at a photo of of what looked like goats in your backyard, and you're from the Pacific Northwest, and I think everyone there's required to have at least one goat. This appears to be like little dolls, cardboard cutouts. What are they? No, it's yard art. I'm getting into yard art. So these are like uh, I don't know what the material is. It's some sort of like cheap metal um, that I got at a garden store, and they're they are very cute, but these are not real goats. These are little metal like they're it's yard art. Do you have yard art? in New York? Yes. The people who are rich enough to have yards in Brooklyn sometimes uh, put really cool stuff up. But uh, okay. Well, I retract my... <laughs> I, was, I had this whole line of questioning. Uh, I was going to ask... Okay, how 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 do you think a goat would get along with Moose if you had a goat? That's a good question. He might try to have sex with them. That's possible. Um, he might try to befriend them. He might try to milk them. He might try to eat them. There's really no telling. Moose is... Um, uh, there's no tactful way to put this. Moose is pretty horny, it sounds like. He's going through a stage right now. You know, as people know, Moose still has his testicles, and um, he's going through some changes right now. I would not say that he is overly horny. He is uh, he is in a lesbian household. There's... <laughs> <laughs> He's the right amount of horny. <laughs> exactly. So he's not one of those like dogs that hump everything and is constantly trying to have sex. He's definitely not. We're lucky, especially considering that he still has his testicles. But, um, you know, he's a teen boy. We have to just sort of expect that there's going to be some, you know, awkwardness in front of the moms every once in a while while he tries to hump his, his fucking baby blanket. Do you have, uh, did you knit him a pair of dog sweatpants so he can hide <laughs> his boner? I actually just put, um, I put basketball shorts on him. <laughs> Uh, you know how men be. Oh, indeed, indeed. I guess that was that was it. What podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I am Jesse Single, and Katie, we have certain subjects 
this week that we're going to discuss. Yes, today we are going to talk about uh, a recent article that was published in the New York Times about the ACLU, what is going uh, what is going on inside the ACLU. We're also going to talk about Harambe, is that how do you pronounce it? Yep. Harambe, everyone's favorite dead gorilla. And anything else? Yeah, we're going to talk about your your interview with the woman in whiteness. Oh, that's right. That's right. So let's start with that. Yeah. So, Jesse, I had a week. You did. I mean, you've had many weeks, but this was even more of a week. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, so I guess this was last Friday. So so a week ago tomorrow, I published the second installment of a series I'm doing at Barry Weiss's newsletter. And the series is about... Wait, wait, wait. wait. She's... she's uh- a literal white supremacist, <laughs> not Nazi, right? No, 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 That's no. I, I, no, no, no. She's oh, a okay. Jew supremacist. It's different. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So Barry Weiss has this wildly successful Substack newsletter. For people who don't know, Barry Weiss is a former editor and, and columnist at the New York Times. She quit and started a Substack. She also launched her first podcast this week. Did you listen to it? I have not yet, but I saw... Uh, the second episode, the non-intro episode, was about that poor Palestinian family in Minneapolis. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. This was a, a family whose business was a, a attempted and maybe was basically destroyed because the daughter did racist tweets when she was a teenager. And then there was very little forgiveness shown for the father who ran the business and had nothing to do with it. Right. A Palestinian family um, that was canceled yeah. over these over these bad tweets. So the podcast is, I hate to say, is uh, is very good. There's more than one podcast, it turns out. And Barry has the other one, um, and it's quite good. So she, uh, so as part of her newsletter, she asked me to to do this series to work with her on this series about just for lack of a better term, this sort of wokeness in medicine and the same things that we are seeing happening in media and in parts of the government and education are also happening in medicine. Surprise, surprise. And the second part of the series was. An interview, a Q&A with a, a psychiatrist in New York um, who did a talk at Yale as part of Yale's Grand, Grand Rounds program. And, and Grand Rounds is, is basically a lecture series, but it's a little bit it's a little bit more important than a, like a regular lecture series because Grand Rounds is something that typically doctors and, and residents and maybe med students would would attend. And you can get licensing credit by the state for attending this. Um, so it's it's important. And the title of this particular talk was The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. <laughs> it's just so funny because it's just so like not as influential or evil, I would argue, but it's just literally the flip side of like black people have different brains. It's so crazy. Anyway, right, go on, right. So it was given by a woman named Aruna Kilanani, Dr. K, as I'm going to call her in this podcast, uh, when I first sent her my my introductory email. I called her by her first name and she quickly corrected me. So we're going to call her doctor. And the reason that this story ended up being sort of um, going like wildly viral and being covered all over the media, national and international, is because of the following clip. White people make my blood boil. Around five years ago, I took some actions. I systemically, systematically, now I'm getting confused, white ghosted most of my white friends and I got rid of the couple white BIPOCs that snuck in my crew too. I stopped watching the news. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I had less than 1% left. It was also public service. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body 
and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step. Like I did the world a fucking favor. Yeah, I don't uh I don't really see what's controversial here. <laughs> okay. So someone put someone leaked the full audio of the of the um lecture. This was probably the most inflammatory part, but there were a lot of inflammatory parts. I'll just I'll just read a couple of others. This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they suck you dry. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil. White people are out of their minds and have been for a long time. We are now in a psychological predicament because white people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. They feel we should be thanking them for what for all they have done for us. They are confused and so are we. We keep forgetting that directly talking about race is a waste of our breath. We are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks that they are a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility. It ain't gonna happen. They have five holes in their brain. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. It's just like sort of not a good idea. And uh, <laughs> where's the Katie? Where's the lie? Come on. This is my favorite one. We need to remember that directly talking about race to white people is useless because they are at the wrong level of conversation. Addressing racism assumes that white people can see and process what they are talking about. They can't. That's why they sound demented. They don't even know they have a mask on. White people think it's their actual face. Okay, so so. We got the audio, and then I approached Dr. K for a Q&A. And I was frankly surprised. Can I actually break in for one sec? I'm curious. Sure. Was that your idea or Barry's? To do the Q&A? Yeah. It was mine. Because um, I, I, I do think it reflects well on you, and I think it's like a nice contrast to the, the usual style of things. It would just be like throw up the worst clip of this online and sort of let it speak for itself, whereas I think the route you went ended up producing something much more interesting. Yeah, I really did not want to just throw up the audio. And I like I will admit I was really conflicted about this. Like when I first heard the tape, I thought like, oh, this is this is crazy shit. This woman is is like saying, I mean, this is a small a small example of of what she says, but it's an hour of a lot of this sort of projection, including some of these like violent fantasies that she had. But I was still conflicted about it because mostly because of my own experience going through public shaming and talking to lots of people who have gone through public shaming. And so I have this like probably misplaced empathy towards people. And I really, even as a reporter, I really don't like to make people's lives more difficult if I don't, <laughs> if I don't think that they are actually like harming people. Uh, this is a woman who literally wants to murder you probably. Yes. And you're I mean, even showing empathy for her. <laughs> she, that's the thing. She doesn't actually want to murder me. So it turns out that that what she's basically like a, a woke Freudian. And a psychiatrist told me that it's actually not out of bounds for to talk about violent fantasies like this. This is just this is like there's a you know an acknowledgement that fantasies are not the same as actions and that by by talking about your fantasies or sort of airing you're you're like letting your anger out right i don't think that she's actually murderous at all but this was just a like a a wild fucking thing to hear um to hear in a lecture being given at this was at the Yale Child Study Center and it was given for for like state licensing credit and so Barry came to me with the audio and I was I was really conflicted about it and I and I thought about it a lot and that sometimes I thought like I don't want to take part in this and then and then I you know I talked to other people I got I got some more some more input and what I what I came down to at the end was a couple things it was going to 
the story was going to get out whether or not I participated in it. And I felt that I could do it in a way that did add a little bit more context instead of just throwing the audio up online or instead of just like, like, you know, you'll never believe what this woman said, but actually trying to give her a chance to speak and explain herself. So that was the goal of the Q&A. And the other reason that I decided that this was worth me participating in, even though it does in some ways go against my fundamental dislike of public shaming and cancel culture was because since the very founding of psychology, there have been these moments of really nutty ideas that have spread. And this woman is a a psychoanalytic. She's a psychologist. She's also a psychiatrist. So she does have the ability to prescribe medicine. As she told me, this is not something that she really does. She's really more interested in in like Freudian psychoanalysis. So just for like a couple of examples of like nutty moments in the history of psychology, psychology. So we've talked about before, we've talked about recovered memories. We did an interview with a guy named Ethan Waters who wrote a book about this. I recommend going back and listening to this. Uh, Multiple personality disorder, um, the idea of homosexuality as a disorder. I think some elements of of current current day gender therapy fall into this like nutty moral panic, psychology gone off the rails category. And then there was, there's also a moment. Do you know anything about, about attachment therapy? Yeah, a little bit, but I, I just know it's like weird and controversial. So attachment therapy was a, a school of thought of, of basically a tactic for dealing with mostly adopted children who had serious behavioral disorders. And it was based on the idea that the adoptive child hadn't formed a bond with the adoptive parent. And so like one common element of this, of this type of therapy involved what's called holding therapy. And so the the child would be like held or laid on by the parent or the therapist. They would restrain the child. And then uh, there, there were these like rebirthing ceremonies. So you would sort of simulate the idea of going through childbirth and like making deep eye contact in a way of like, it, it's creepy shit. Six, at least six children that we know about actually died going through yeah. this process. So, so in like the long scale of psychology as nutty as shit, I don't think this woman is even in like the top 10% of craziest, of, of craziest practitioners. I don't, but that still to me was a reason to continue with the story because psychology does have a history of bad ideas and those ideas need to be exposed. And I think what she is preaching is bad. So that was sort of my thinking about whether or not to participate in this. But I will admit, like, I really hesitated. I still feel ambivalent about it. After the story came out, it immediately immediately went viral. It was covered by from everywhere. It was on the fucking front front like like homepage of the Daily Mail. Fox News did a did a bunch of different segments about it. The New York Times covered it. Um all of these like local papers covered it. Yale ended up putting out a statement. Like so it it absolutely has probably ruined this woman's life, at least temporarily. And I've been too much of a of a wimp to just check in on her, although I kind of want to. Um, so I feel like really ambivalent about this, but I still think that the story was worth doing because it, it is true that these ideas are spreading. And she didn't give this lecture. This wasn't like a random psychologist giving this lecture on YouTube. This was at the Yale Child Study Center for Grand Rounds. Yeah, that's a very big deal. I mean, that's not... Yeah. And the response... At, so... 
the like I listened to the I listened to the the entire lecture and then the question or like the comment section afterward and without fail every one of the comments from these Yale clinicians or or staff staffers at Yale or, or whoever they were it was all positive you know somebody might, might have said like that was hard to hear or whatever but for the most part they were just like snapping and clapping and saying like thank you thank you thank you for being that's this so honest. creepy that's it, so creepy. it was super super creepy. So I don't know. There was so I did this Q and A with her. There were some like very funny moments of the Q and A. Can I can I read you my favorite part? Yeah. Okay. So at one point I asked her, and um, <clears throat> she's really into the unconscious, which is this wasn't. We talked for two hours, so there was a lot that was cut from the final Q and A. But at one point she's talking about the unconscious, and I say like I I don't. Can you explain to me like how we know that the unconscious exists? I'm like, can you provide some evidence? And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like evidence, evidence. like what? what do you of, of course it exists what do you what do you talk and i was like yeah like how, like how would we measure this thing and i don't know she was just like sort of flabbergasted that i was asked, asked for evidence i i will say people from her school i mean mm-hmm. that's a famous criticism of everything freud related is it's like unfalsifiable and yeah. uh i mean i think one of the dangers of it is like you know, if you're if you're strongly attached to a therapist, they might make confident statements interpreting interpreting this or that aspect of your life that are just like sort of sometimes based on nothing. Yeah, yeah. And she like contradicted herself all throughout the interview. Anyway, okay, so here's my favorite part. So at one point I asked her, I wanted to talk about her practice to to differentiate between what she was saying at this lecture series and how and like how she actually treats her patients. Like, is she going into, into a session with her, her white clients and, and talking about how she wants to unload a revolver into their head? And, and, <laughs> and she said that there's a, that there's a distinction. She does like her public speaking and then she, you know, and then her, her, her sessions are different. And she's like, I, I do like the idea of her having a white client and that client has really bad problems. And she's like, I think I have a permanent solution. <laughs> a final solution. <laughs> okay. So at one point I said, let's talk about your practice. You've mentioned that you treat a lot of white people and you treat, quote, whiteness. What's the distinction between the two? And she said, I wouldn't say there is a distinction. For example, for white women, I do help a lot with passive aggressiveness, not being able to use their voice, say things, feeling like there will be a negative consequence. White people have an intense level of guilt. I have never seen a level of guilt that I see among white people. I mean, white people don't eat bread. Think about that. There have been wars all over the world over grains and bread, and only here, white people are depriving themselves. First of all, that I take that as a direct personal attack on me. As I a, think that means you're a person of color. <laughs> I eat so much bread. Uh, I mean, it just—it sort of just seems like colorful performance and exaggeration. There's like a style of like fuck white people rhetoric that is clearly just geared at like inflaming one group of people and get the, uh, getting the other group to snap their fingers in a set. It's just so bizarre that it's like, uh, I don't know, man. Also, it's sort of funny for someone in her position to say, like, why are white people so guilt-ridden all the time? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, maybe that might have something to do with the fact that you're constantly telling white people that they're bad. Um, and so later in the interview, I said, it seems like you generalize a lot about white people, but also people of color. Why do you do that? And then she responded, what do you feel is a generalization? And I said, like white people having a high level of guilt or not eating bread. That's true for some people for sure, but I eat bread. And she said, she responded, 
You asked me before, what is the unconscious? I think the unconscious is coming out right now between you and I. The idea that I'm the one that's generalizing is, I think, a defensive reaction to my talking about whiteness. You feel put on the spot, and so I'm the one that's generalizing. This is like how people schooled in psychoanalysis talk is just like very, it's very <laughs> It's annoying. gaslighting. She was gaslighting me. This goes back to you wanting to have sex with your dad, Katie. Fundamentally, that's what it's about. <laughs> I thought I was gay. Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't I have like the reverse, the reverse Oedipus? No, 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 no. That's a defense mechanism. You, you, you think you're gay to defend yourself against that thought. That explains a lot. Um, anyway, so yeah, this was it was a pretty wild experience, sort of watching all this take off, and um, you know, and like having these conflicted feelings about like, okay, this. This story that I did is getting a ton of attention, and for a journalist, that's sort of your currency. And yet, I feel fucking terrible about it because, as much as I think that this woman is is nutty and probably shouldn't be working with 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 patients, much less lecturing at Yale ground ground rounds, I also made her life much harder. I mean, she made her life harder, but I put the spotlight on it. It's interesting that. That like, you know, uh, someone like Barry Weiss, there's a lot of these stories going on and they clearly get a big readership. Uh, someone like Barry Weiss is very well positioned to be tipped off to them. And then sure enough, the New York Times saw fit to cover it. It was a big enough deal. So yeah, it's, it clearly was a uh, story that resonated and worried some people. Yeah. Uh, Barry Weiss is back in the New York Times. She's back, baby. Um, did they mention that she sort of broke the story that you did in the article? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Both you guys got mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So uh, was there anything else we wanted to say about this? Because I wanted to sort of branch off into some of the whiteness talk briefly, because there were a couple other recent examples of that I found really interesting. Um, okay, last thing about this. I think that some people have assumed that she is black. And I know this because I got more than one email from somebody saying, um, you know, she's just exp- expressing black rage. She's Indian. She's like from like a, a rich Indian family. Just expressing that famous Indian, Indian rage. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I might eventually write something about this, but but the term whiteness, which is sort of the result of like of whiteness studies, and um, I think largely stem from a book by a guy named Rodinger, the Wages of Whiteness. Um, there, there's various academic strands, uh, and I can include a link to a critique of of basically whiteness theory that I found very useful. It has gotten to the point where people just like use whiteness in these really weird, oftentimes conflicting ways. So. People were passing around this abstract from a very crazy study, also from the world of psychoanalysis, on having whiteness by Donald Moss in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. And I think they pulled this offline. Oh, really? I believe they do. People, we can we can check that. It was still on, like, I think PubMed, which is this big collection of sort of academic papers. Um, but whiteness is a condition one first acquires and then one has a malignant parasitic-like condition to which white people have a particular susceptibility. The condition is foundational, generating characteristic ways of being in one's body, in one's mind, and in one's world. Parasitic whiteness renders its host's appetites voracious, insatiable, and perverse. But not for bread. No, not for bread. (laughs) It saps your appetite for bread. These deformed appetites particularly target non-white peoples. Once established, these appetites are nearly impossible to eliminate. Effective treatment consists of a combination combination of psychic and social historical interventions. I'm sure those are very evidence-based. He just goes on to explain those interventions can reasonably aim only to reshape whiteness's infiltrated appetites, reduce their intensity. Basically, you can can manage the condition, you can't treat it. 
Finally, when remembered and represented, the ravages wreaked by the chronic condition can function either as warning, never again, or as temptation, great again. Memorialization alone, therefore, is no guarantee against regression. There is not yet a permanent cure. It sounds a lot like MS. <laughs> yeah, or demonic possession, depending on your era. Yeah. I mean, and then the, there's a similar example. This jumped out. Um, Connor Friedersdorf interviewed the children's author Anastasia Higginbotham, who wrote one of those sort of something in the general vein of, of anti-racist child. Um a couple examples of how she uses whiteness. Whiteness is the reason these killings by police happen. The white cultural mindset that tells us white is good and innocent while black is bad and dangerous. Whiteness is the reason cops make split-second decisions to fire their weapons into the body of an unarmed person who is black while not even reaching for their weapon during interactions with armed and violent criminals who are white. So uh, we don't need to beat this to death. We've, we've talked about this at length. That's just a crazy misinterpretation of the, the evidence because plenty of white people are killed by police and few unarmed people of any color are killed by police. She continues, You write, meaning Connor writes, Many systems in America are clearly neither violent nor white supremacists. And this is back to her. But that's not how whiteness works. Any place where there are white people has violent white supremacy embedded into it because it is embedded in us. Do I kill people? No. Does my call to 911? It might. So long as we give the lies and distortions of whiteness space inside our bodies and minds, we are its hosts. We bring it into every room, interaction, classroom, and child we raise unprepared to question it. So it it is honestly not that far off from demonic possession to the point of, of causing people to like murder one race of people and let the other race of people threaten them. It's just it seems detached from any like clearly thought out theories of, of race. And that's not good. Yeah, I mean, Connor did a good job pushing back on this woman, but she just seemed completely resistant to any sort of evidence. I, I do think it reaches a point where this belief in whiteness becomes basically religious, and that can explain some of the more over-the-top claims and the fact that people say pretty incoherent or nonsensical things about it. Uh, I do think we could have plenty of coherent discussions about like white supremacy or racism, but white, capital W, whiteness has now taken on these genuinely religious overtones that I, I don't I think they sort of obscure and mystify more than they clarify. Yeah, I said something about this in my interview with Dr. K, and I don't think this made the the final cut. Co- the final cut. Um, but why are we using the term whiteness? Like this doesn't seem like all that this is going to do is turn off a significant portion of the population. If what you mean is something else, I don't know, white supremacy or something like this. Why are you calling this whiteness? I just I don't find it a very helpful term. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should write this thing. I, I basically just think we should like abolish it in journalistic writing. Maybe there's a place in academia for people to continue trying to make the case this is a thing. But the way you see it um, written in in journalistic articles, it's clear that the people using it don't know exactly what it means. And they're just using it in that vague hand wavy thing like um, – Maybe neoliberalism is a good parallel because neoliberalism, I mean, that does have a definition, but you also see like lefties just use it to refer to anything they don't like. So it's not a helpful term. Sure. Or like even like wokeness, this term that is also ambiguous. You know, I I do hear some of the same sort of rhetoric occasionally about wokeness sort of being in the air the same way that, you know, whiteness or white supremacy is in the air. And I'm uncomfortable with, with, with that sort of rhetoric in both ways. I think we need to get a little bit more specific when we talk about these things. Oh my God. I, I mean, I was just going to uh, write or tweet about this after, although I'm supposed to not be tweeting. Shh. But um, the, some of the big anti-wokeness guys just put out this 
big poster that people are celebrating that's basically like when people say diversity, they really mean this. And when people say social justice, they mean this. And it's like really a horseshoe thing of the same paranoia and mind reading and just totalizing nonsense. I, these guys are – you're talking about like James Lindsay here. This was James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, and um, uh, Bruce Gilley, who I'm less familiar with. This is not helping. James Lindsay, I think, is doing no. way more to hurt the cause that he purports to be about. Well, but well, but, the, well, but that depends because like we need that assumes when you say doing more to hurt, it assumes we have similar goals, and I don't, I don't think we do because he, true, you know, true. he didn't think yeah. there was that big a deal in terms of favoring. Well, uh, I don't want to go back to the whole who should be president thing. We both clearly thought Biden was infinitely better choice, but yeah, I just think he has really different political goals, and because these guys call themselves liberals. It's assumed they have like very similar goals to me and you. And I think they've shown repeatedly they don't, or at least I don't think they do. Yeah. Yesterday, James Lindsay was was tweeting about uh, white genocide. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And this is also, it's doing the exact same thing that your ideological opponents are doing, which is catastrophizing and, uh, and, and making these like extremist remarks that aren't actually going to help anything. I think we need to like take down the fucking tone of the conversation on all sides about a million degrees. And James Lindsay is not helping. Yeah, I, the I mean the white genocide stuff is really really dark, and it's funny because people people will often accuse like the use and me's of the world, like oh we criticize Robin D'Angelo or we think some forms of contemporary liberal race talk are are silly and bad. Therefore, we're like one step removed from going full racist. But some of these guys like are white genocide theory is very very. Not good. It is a racist theory. And the fact that he's anywhere near that is not a good sign. We've done enough James Lindsay talk in this episode. Let's move on. Let's get back. Let's get down to the good shit. Harambe. <laughs> All right. So um, so we missed a very important uh, anniversary of a celebrity death. Harambe, everybody's favorite gorilla, uh, died May 28th, uh, 2016. God, the world was very different back so, then. So much simpler. Yes, it really was. Um, okay, so he was basically – he was a gorilla. This was at the Cincinnati Zoo. Young child tragically slipped through the bars, got into the enclosure. Harambe is like, I think, carrying him around and tossing him around like a rag doll. This horrible spectacle goes on for 10 minutes. Eventually, uh, Harambe is shot to potentially save the child's life. Now – this is a very sad story, but in the internet's hands, it quickly produced some like very amazing memes. I'm going to sum up something written by close personal friend of the podcast, Aja Romano at Vox. And I'll explain some of these references uh, subsequently. On Reddit, forums memorializing him, like R. Harambe and R. Dicks Out for Harambe, have gained thousands of readers since Harambe's death. Online petitions have abounded to erect a White House statue of Harambe, make him a Pokemon, put his face on the $50 bill, and change the name of Cincinnati, uh, that's where the zoo was, to Harambe City. A Texas-based presidential poll indicated Harambe getting 2% of the popular vote. Uh, He's been spotted on t-shirts at the Republican National... Is that why Trump won? Yeah, Harambe stole 2% of the vote from Hillary Clinton. That would have done it, it I guess. It was a fucking write-in campaign. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, the reason I've been thinking a lot about Harambe lately is like the internet has gotten really terrible. And this is not an original thing to say among people who spend too much time on social media. But even in 2016, things were starting to get bad. But at the time, they, the internet was still like – 
or corners of it at least, sort of like a fun carnival where people would come to hang out and gawk and buy popcorn. And to me, Harambe was like one of the last instances of just like, despite the circumstances, fairly innocent, um, I don't know, celebration and meme slinging. And it it also was sort of, uh, are you familiar with like weird Twitter, that concept? Yeah, I I know what weird Twitter is. I've never been able to like quite like find the door into weird Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can I can help with that. Um. So basically, Romano uh, attributes the rise of these Harambe memes to black Instagram and weird Twitter. Twitter. I'm gonna leave out the black Instagram part. I will link you to our article. I am just you know you are actually contractually obligated when you write an, an article for Vox to attribute whatever it is. It it always started on black Twitter or black Instagram. That's it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in the contract. contract. The union the union actually um stipulated that. I had associated Harambe much more with weird Twitter. I don't know if Romano's right. You can read her article and find out. I'm so I don't even know. I think it's actually racist for her to 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 attribute uh, memes about gorillas to Black Instagram. You know, I have no comment, but you're probably it's probably driven <laughs> motivated by racism. Um, whiteness by whiteness. Okay, so so um, the part of her article I, I did know a little bit about it traced it to weird Twitter. Weird Twitter was sort of like mostly this loose collection of Twitter accounts. Uh, they're mostly synonymous. They started on a famous infamous something awful forum called fuck yourself and die um and around the time of harambe's death weird twitter was mostly just doing this very particular brand of to me mostly apolitical except in the just generally lefty corporations are dumb sense um they did a lot of good tweets. There's a BuzzFeed oral history of weird Twitter that I, I heartily recommend for anyone hoping to understand recent internet history. I'm just going to read two tweets that to me sum up um, weird Twitter. And you'll see it's a very strange sense of humor that might not be for everyone, but I, I, I loved it. This is, oh, also people on weird Twitter have usernames like at dog boner, at fart, and at weed Hitler. That sounds like someone you would like, Katie, weed Hitler, combining two of your favorite pastimes. That's actually me. <laughs> All right. Here's one from rare underscore basement. I'm pretty popular on the internet. I whispered to my cat. Cat doesn't respond because cat doesn't exist. There is no cat and I am alone. It doesn't really work when I read it, but I find that very funny. All right, I'll just do one more. This is from Drug Leaf. I found your tumbler, son. Welcome to the force. Here's your gun and badge. Your first case is who's grounded? It's you. Turn in your badge and gun. I don't get it. I love this shit. Okay, anyway, I know you don't. Back to Harambe. So, so these guys and they're sort of like wannabe weird Twitter things produced a lot of amazing Harambe memes. Do you know like the uh, the trolley problem? Yeah. So it's just this idea from philosophy. Train's about to hit one person. Do you pull – or train's about to hit two people. Do you pull a lever to hit one person instead? Just trying to like reveal our intuitions about morality and responsibility. So someone did – if you pull the lever, Harambe will die. If you don't, his existence will never be appreciated. What do we value higher, Harambe or the idea of Harambe? Um, there was Cecil the Lion was killed by who? Uh, the dentist. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. It sounds mysterious. Yes, this was like a, one of those trips where you get you pay to go to Africa and kill animals, right? Yeah, a, like a big game hunting trip. And there's and like yes, Cecil the Lion was killed. This was like a, a well. He was a famous lion. He was killed by some dentist in the Midwest, I think. And of course, this guy was like, I don't know. I think he probably had to like leave his house and shit. I mean, like really, really crazy internet storm. 
Radiolab, and we'll post a link to this in the show notes. Radiolab later did an interesting, like, nuanced story in the way that public radio used to do about how these conservation programs, like big game hunting, actually actually funds uh, much of conservation in Africa. So it's it actually was such a good radio. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. It's so it's a little bit. I mean, he still killed this like fucking famous lion. It's terrible, but there's a lot more like nuance and complication when it comes to big game hunting than I think casual observers might uh, might be aware of. Yeah, so um, someone photoshopped Cecil and Harambe wrestling with all these like fluffy clouds and said, Cecil and Harambe fighting in heaven. They are enemies. <laughs> There's also so- someone did the top 20 political assassinations of the 20th century with photos of JFK, Gandhi, and Harambe. <laughs> <laughs> and then this is the photo of Harambe the Cincinnati Zoo doesn't want you to see. And it's Harambe just has a uh, an electric guitar for some reason. And I think um, Elon Musk did a rap about Harambe. Did he accuse Harambe of being a child molester? <laughs> that did not come up. So I'll include a link to these. They're obviously much better read and um, viewed than, than explained by me. But Katie, are you sympathetic to my general theory that the internet has gotten meaner? Because I, I, I do think what's what's notable here is the internet turning something that is bad into something that is good and funny and ultimately harmless. Whereas these days I'm more familiar with the internet taking like – being dead irrelevant or banal yeah or media just stuff that's just nothing or is good and making it bad and trying to sap people's enjoyment of it this is what the trump administration did to people this is the one tangible effect the trump administration had that's it that's it, that's it. and it's been lasting he ruined twitter for us why do you think that is? Is it just people everything got hyper politicized? Well, I mean I'm sort of kidding there, but I do think that this this urge to be seen as on the right side of history is incredibly powerful right now. And so take an example like Bean Dad. And for people who don't remember, this was right around the new year this year. Um, a guy in Seattle did this tweet storm about making his daughter like learn how to use a can opener. And this resulted in – so this like what he thought was this like funny, charming story about resilience it resulted in him eventually – leaving Twitter, uh, being disavowed by a bunch of his his former friends, and even fucking CPS being called on this man. So fucking insane. Yeah, yeah. So something has shifted. I mean, I'm sure we could find examples that would um, that would uh, destroy our thesis here. But I think that something has shifted. Yeah, Twitter's meaner, but the idea to be seen as good, it's like reverse bullying. Bullying, bullying people you think are bullies. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Also, like a lot of the weird Twitter people, not all of them, but some of them became pretty unsufferable themselves when it comes to politics. And, uh, and it's well, fun- also, I mean, let's let's think about like what happened just over the last couple of years with people who worked at places like Jezebel and Gawker, who used to be uh, iconoclastic, like openly shitty, you know hated fucking rules are now the enforcers now now they're the 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 thought police and we've seen this over and over again where like social justice or the idea of social justice has become this meme and it's like highly important for everybody to be perceived as being on the right side of social justice there's also it's interesting that a lot of these guys and i think they're mostly males on 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 weird twitter this forum fuck you and die at at something awful here's how the all described in 2014 after it was shut down FYAD was a proudly inscrutable something awful forum dedicated to terrorizing the site's more accessible communities as well as the internet at large. 
it was like a famously offensive place. I, I don't, I haven't like perused it, but it was just known as like the source of a lot of like, you know, pretty edgelordy stuff. And I do think there's a pretty large subset of people who 15 years ago said like horribly offensive stuff that would get you permanently kicked out of polite company today. Not, not rightly or righteously, because I think people should be forgiven for that stuff, but who today are like policing others. And I think part of the shift away from like Harambe style happy memes to the current state is is that. We should start digging up people who did these, uh, did Harambe jokes and canceling them for animal cruelty. <laughs> we really should. Um, yeah, I guess that's it on that. Um, Katie, you want to talk a little bit about this uh, Michael Powell ACLU story in the New York Times as well, right? Yeah. So Michael Powell, New York Times reporter, um, who's done some really, really good work lately. He was the one who did that great, uh, great, not expose. He did that great report on Smith College. Um came out this week with a new piece on what is going on at the ACLU. It is called, Once a Bastion of Free Speech, the ACLU Faces an Identity Crisis. And then the subhead, an organization that has defended the First Amendment rights of Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan is split by an internal debate over whether supporting progressive causes is more important. Uh, so this is something that we've talked about a lot. I've been sort of waiting for somebody to come up with a definitive what the fuck is happening to the ACLU piece, and this might be it. What did you think of this piece? Yeah, I mean, I thought it laid out some some really interesting stuff going on there. I mean, um, the peak of some of the craziness at the ACLU, his name has come up before. I don't necessarily want to re-engage in some of the past disputes, but like Chase Strangio, the top sort of uh, a trans person who's a very higher up there, saying that Abigail Schreier's book should be basically banned from places like Amazon. Um, I don't remember the exact context. It was basically it shouldn't be sold online and that he would die on that hill. For an ACLU higher up to say that runs really contrary to the mission of the organization. I also thought like more damning was that I believe the the number was the ACLU's budget stretched from a hundred million to three hundred million dollars after Trump because every good liberal donated to the ACLU. They apparently didn't hire any new free speech lawyers, but they're now they've become this like a lot of or progressive organizations have have gone this route, but they're just sort of about everything and they don't seem to be focused on free speech in particular. Yeah, you've seen this at places like Planned Parenthood as well, where it becomes um, just sort of like the the original mission just really stretches. You know, you see when you start to sort of like pay attention to concept creep, you kind of can notice it pretty much everywhere. Um, but yeah, so according to Powell's reporting, the ACLU still has the same number of lawyers specializing in free speech today as they did a decade ago, and that number is four. Yeah. So uh, that tells you a little bit about what the ACLU's priorities are. Um, a lot of this we've sort of talked about before the, in the post-Trump election. They get this influx of donations, and all of a sudden the ACLU, like Planned Parenthood, like all these other groups, become the sort of catch-all resistance, the Trump resistance, as opposed to, you know, the the bastion of free speech, as, as Michael Powell writes. Is it Bastion? I think it's Bastion. Yeah, you might be right about that. We're supposed to only mispronounce names, not regular words. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So Powell, he, he writes about the, like, the Chase Strangio thing without actually naming Chase Strangio, which I found to be an interesting choice, and I wonder if that was Powell's choice or if that came in the editing process. I 
bet you anything it was an editor. I'm saying that based on nothing. I'm very confidently declaring that based on nothing, except I don't see why. I can't imagine Powell would have left that out, but who knows? I can't imagine that either. Yeah. And other people pointed out that like, all right, so Chase Strangio does bad tweets. It's Chase Strangio's free speech rights to do bad speech, and he shouldn't be penalized for it by his by his uh, his employer. You can make an argument for that for sure. We've made that argument before. Um, but it's not just Chase Strangio or individual staffers. It's the official ACLU accounts, which is continually writing these sort of like millennial or Zoomer style inflammatory t- tweets um, that don't reflect what the organization's values used to be before Trump. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it's just it's just very it sounds the same as every other group and 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 a lot of the times it's unclear what the connection is to its original free speech mission. I saw some responses that were bad faith including basically just saying Michael Powell is just uncomfortable with like talking about racism which is this is the go-to response if you criticize any social justice effort is you must like racism secretly that's dumb. I did see other people say that the article could have focused more on like more under the radar stuff the ACLU does rather than its Twitter feed, like anti-surveillance effort, defending like students in free speech cases. I think that's fair. And that's like a matter of what, what one article can focus on, but there's definitely some like fairly uh, unhinged criticism as well. Yeah. So ACLU attorneys in particular did not like this piece. So this is a, a tweet from Carl Takai, senior staff attorney at the ACLU. He writes, as both a longtime ACLU attorney and a near absolutist on free speech who works on policing and racial justice, the bait and switch here really frustrates me. The article is nominally about free speech, but it's really about the, host- the reporter's hostility to racial justice work. I mean, it it's just so tight. It's just such the stock response at this point. And it, it suggests that there couldn't be legitimate um, conflicts between quote-unquote racial justice work, which means a million different things, and f- fucking free speech stuff, because of course there are. I mean, if you have like a racist speaker who wants to speak on a public university campus, you could have racial justice work trying to deplatform him, and I that they're allowed to try to do that. And then you could have the ACLU saying, no, they, they're allowed to speak under the First Amendment. That doesn't make the ACLU anti-social justice. It's just, it seems like a childish framing to me. Right. And this tension, you can see this tension just in terms of the cases that the ACLU is involved in right now. Like in Washington State, this is the ACLU of Washington, not the National ACLU, but the ACLU of Washington. They have been um, fighting. So a, so a bunch of news organizations and some activists filed public records reports to, to get information about the number of trans women and not just the number, other details about the number of trans women in women's prisons. And the ACLU is fighting against them. So the ACLU is fighting against the transparency of, of the prison system. Um, they're fighting against reporters in order to protect and part the identities of these trans women who are in prisons. You can make an argument that these trans women should be protected and their identity, identity shouldn't be released. That's that's an argument that that's a fair argument to make. I think there's but the, the, the tension really is clear. The point is that you yeah, yeah the point is that it's not always clear which like in a situation like that there's competing interests like the the prison system should they have to release data should should natal females going to jail have access to that information it's it's complicated but yeah the aclu has come down hard on issues like that um i mean you could say the same thing about about the aclu defending sort of the most liberal uh state laws about trans youth in sports where it's really just gender identity the aclu is in that case 
pretending there's like no potential conflicts there. There's obviously some potential conflict. It's not the end of the world. I don't think it's going to end women's sports, as some people have claimed. But um, you could imagine a universe where the ACLU has more nuanced thoughts on this stuff. But I think partly because at the at the top, I do think people like Strangio are very, very influential. And I do think uh, this idea that you don't want to run afoul of Twitter is is in a weird way really influencing these organizations that, that chooses what stances they take, I believe. Yeah. So I, I checked in with a couple of my contacts at the National ACLU and asked what, what their um, impressions of the piece were. And the response I got back was from from two different people was – that these critics did have a point about sort of Michael Powell focusing on Twitter and focusing on, on these sort of what appear to be sort of smaller, more trifling issues, but that this generational divide, that this tension within the organization is incredibly real, um, which is, should not be surprising because it's, we've seen it in fucking what institution haven't we seen it in at this point? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the same stuff going on everywhere. All right. Uh, Katie, anything else? I think that's it. All right. As always, uh, send us your Harambe memes at uh, <laughs> and threats to shoot white people in the head to blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Merch store, barpod.org. Uh, so much merch. Katie, give give me the rundown of the numbers. How's it selling lately? Uh, one billion, two billion, somewhere between the two. Yeah, that was, I got an estimate of one to two billion from our. Um, and that's that's units, not dollars. Yeah. And and w- each unit is four dollars. Yeah, the uh, the children are slaving away in the basement right now, churning out your merch. Our 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 Kyrgyzstani subcontractors are really producing a lot of good merchandise. We it's the it's, we don't know it's children. We don't really ask about the labor. It's more of a don't ask, don't tell. Which is a I hope they have small fingers. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, Reddit. Sub, uh, our subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash block important. Most important of all, and this is really important, really important, guys. If you like our work, uh, patreon.com slash blocked reported is our premium subscription program. For $5 a month or more, you get at least three extra episodes of this very podcast a month. You will also have access to uh, basically comments forums where you can talk to 5,000 plus other members of the podcast. It's basically the best community ever. If we ever founded a country, I think it would it would become the most powerful country on earth in short order. So yeah, patreon.com slash blocked reported. Is that it, Katie? That's it, I think. I mean, if you've ever been interested in joining a cult, this is the one to join. Yes, this or Scientology is close close call. Yeah, although Scientology might have the have the correct perspective on psychology, if you ask me. <laughs> I'm beginning to come around to that. This has been Blocked Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, dicks out for Harambe. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the most effective way to fight whiteness is to eat bread. <laughs>